This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency focuses on making high-risk technologies a reality. The acting director gives us insight into how the agency identifies which projects to take on. Then, after several high-profile airstrikes that killed civilians, the Defense Department has a new plan for reducing those casualties. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. ARPA-E is the Advanced Research Projects Agency for the Department of Energy and was founded in 2009. Since then, it's funded more than 1,000 high-risk, high-reward projects. Jennifer Gerby is the agency's acting director. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, so ARPA-E has been around for uh, around 13 years. What was the motivation for its creation? Uh, there were two, really, two motivations for its creation. One is R&D competitiveness in the United States, um, and that's something that came about in the American Reinvestment Act in 2009. Uh, but also we knew that there were energy problems that needed to be solved for the country. Um, and that really goes to our mission, which is around things like reducing imports, increasing efficiency, and reducing energy-related emissions. So there's also a climate aspect to it as well. You know, there are a lot of these ARPA model agencies, starting with DARPA for defense, there's IARPA for intelligence, um, there's now the new ARPA-H for health. What's so appealing about that model? You know, it's very difficult to do research and work that's very high risk, because a lot of it is by necessity going to fail. If it doesn't fail, it means you haven't gone high risk enough. It's very difficult to do that within a traditional setup, within a traditional agency. Um, there's a lot of agencies that have very defined problems. They're working on incremental research, which is very important. But in order to swing to the fences and to be able to take on things that aren't going to work, you have to have a special kind of culture where that risk is accepted and you are allowed to do things that you wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. And it involves a fair amount of trust in the agency to be able to do that. And that's why the ARPA model, I think, has been so successful, is because it allows for people to do that. So what's unique about ARPA-E, besides the, the subject matter, which is energy? Well, we're relatively small and new compared to somebody like DARPA. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a particularly, you know, special model on that we're all on term limits. We come for three to five years, and then we go on to the next thing. We're run by a core of empowered program directors, uh, and we all work together pretty seamlessly to pressure test ideas, figure out what to pitch to the agency. Uh, it's a pretty involved process to decide what we should do. And we are still really quite small, and that means we can be a very cohesive bunch, uh, you know, and we can all be in one room together, which again, is it's something pretty special. And, and are you together uh, often? Do you guys collaborate? Do you share notes? We, we do, we do. And, you know, one of the special things about the agency is when you have term limits like this, there's no competition. I mean, there's no promotions, there's no reason to compete. And there's a sense of urgency. I mean, you came because you believe in the mission. You're very passionate about the problem you want to solve. And you only have three to five years to do it. That's not very much time. So because of that sense of urgency as well, we all work together. Um, and it is a pretty amazing place. Well, let's talk about the, the money because uh, ARPA-E awards funding through two different models. Mm -hmm. uh, 
One is called the focused model. So how does that work? How do you decide what research areas you want to focus on? So that's really the core of what goes on at the agency. And so that's where an individual program director decides what problem should be solved and why, and what should that solution look like. And you can spend up to a year uh, talking with everybody under the sun, trying to figure out, is this actually the right thing to do? Uh, we pressure test it at you know, multiple points. We have things like forward-facing workshops, and we put out requests for information. Again, we're constantly pressure testing everybody's ideas. Um, and at the end of the day, that goes to a pitch to the agency for a certain amount of money. And then that is how a focused program moves forward. And we put out a funding announcement. You can see them all on our exchange site. And they're really quite detailed in terms of here's the metrics that need to be met, both on the technical and the market side, for there to be impact from solving this problem. There's the, the open model. So what kind of projects would uh, apply for funding through that? So every three years, we open the doors and we say, all right, anybody who has an idea that fits our mission, apply to the agency. Uh, it's For an agency who's so small, dealing with getting 3,500 applications is really quite something. But it enables us to say, oh, here's areas that you know we had no idea existed or you know solutions in a space where we don't have focused models. Uh, it really helps introduce people to the agency. Um, and it really is a blast to see the kind of ideas that come in. Uh, so that's every three years. We do also do an SBIR seedling, sort of a half million dollar grant. Once a year, we'll probably do those more often. So we do have other opportunities that are open in terms of people applying to the agency. So do you get some really crazy stuff? We get some really crazy stuff. Every time we have an open FOA, we say, all right, how many perpetual motion machines do we have? There's always at least one. Um, there's some people who apply with the same exact thing every single time, but you know what? More power to them. I love the fact that people are sort of pushing boundaries and reaching out and applying to the agency. We never make fun of anything, but we do say there is physics at the end of the day, and so you can always find those. <laughs> Uh, you recently awarded funding for projects focused on turning buildings into carbon storage structures. Mm -hmm. What is that? How does that work? That's a particularly exciting one because there's really two aspects of thinking about energy or carbon in buildings. One is the amount of energy they use. And actually the program I put together when I came to the agency was about trying to use less energy in the buildings. But you can only use so little energy. At the end of the day, there's still a huge amount of carbon involved in the materials you use to make the building and how you make the building. And in order to have a truly carbon neutral building, you have to attack that side of the problem. So this is all about looking at structures and materials and designs that actually end up having either a carbon neutral, even a carbon negative building. So I, I guess that really the bottom line is, how do you really determine what projects get funded and for how long? This is something that I think is a special part of the process for us because we go through a pretty detailed review process. We put out this funding announcement. People usually apply with concept papers. They're just four pages long. Those are either encouraged or discouraged. We have internal reviews, external reviews. Um, then people send in their full applications, which are quite involved. Again, we have internal reviews, external reviews. We convene in person an external review panel to talk about these things. The program director gets all of this information, and then they are empowered to build a portfolio of what they think will best fit the needs of the program. We're not limited to what scores applications got or anything like that. A lot of times we're looking for technical diversity in terms of how many shots on goal can we take here, how many different technical pathways. And so that program director builds the portfolio we then move forward with cooperative agreements with these teams, which are things that can be changed at any time. Sometimes they're shut down, sometimes they're plussed up. All right, we're gonna take a quick pause right here and then we'll come back and continue.
Coming up later on the program, the Pentagon is taking new steps to prevent civilian casualties. But first, we continue our conversation with Jennifer Gerby, the acting director of ARPA-E. That's on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're joined by Jennifer Gerby. She's the acting director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for the Department of Energy. Um, Jennifer, what is ARPA-E's role once um, a project is awarded funding? How hands-on are you? We have something called substantial involvement, which sounds like, yeah, we're pretty hands-on. Uh, we have quarterly reviews with every single one of our projects. Uh, sometimes we visit them in person, sometimes we don't. But we're going through all of the details of the work plan we put together. We have milestones, again, technical and market. We work very closely with our teams. We do everything we can to help them. Um, and you know, we'll even go through the data with them. We'll go through their pitch decks. Um, we work very closely. Uh, and I think that's really important because sometimes ideas need to pivot because a certain approach won't work or it might need to be changed entirely. So we're very flexible, but that's we can be because we work so closely with the teams. So part of what you do is to make sure that those uh, technology, that research that you're funding gets to market. How do you do that? That is tricky because a lot of times there isn't the most attractive market for you know energy efficiency technologies, let's say. Uh, so we work with our teams to try to maybe identify a first market that has additional value so they can at least move forward and get the technology out there. Sometimes that might be a defense market, for example. Uh, we did find that there were a number of our teams that really did have challenges moving forward. And we actually started another kind of program called Scale Up that's open to current or former RPE awardees to try to help them get to the next step, to sort of further validate de-risk technologies out of the lab in a size that actually matters to you know, investors and to get it to move forward. Uh, and that's really been a pretty resounding success, success and we're very happy about it. So we'll, we will do anything to try to get impact. Honestly, at the end of the day, that's what we're all about. Well, speaking of impact, can you give me an example of a specific project or technology that ARPA-E has funded that has directly benefited the American people? You know, there's one that I'll pick, which is one of our first scale-up awardees, which is called Sela Nanotechnologies. And they're a company that makes batteries work significantly better. And we funded them a long time ago. So 10 years ago, that was even a bigger deal when they were trying to do this. It really was sort of, you know, a moonshot type of a thing. So they are currently building a factory in Washington State to be able to do this. Um, and so that means jobs both in the factory and building the factory, and it means U.S. manufacturing for battery materials, which I think is a really big deal because this is the kind of thing that can go into, you know, EVs. We talk about how many electric cars that we want on the roads. The better you can make those batteries, the better it's going to be. So what do you think is the biggest gap in, in energy research now? What, what are you really looking for? What's, what's the big hole out there? There are so many. And I think that's the challenge, is that there's a lot of potential needs that are out there. There's also a lot of places where current technology just needs to be deployed. Um, so it really is identifying those gaps where you can do something that makes a truly transformative difference in you know, what we can do in terms of energy or climate for the country. And sometimes those things are subtle. They're not necessarily obvious. Like what? Give me some examples. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it could be something that even involves something like agriculture. We don't usually think of that in terms of energy, but when you think of it in terms of climate, there's all sorts of things that actually act like greenhouse gases. You're trying to get more carbon into the soil. You're trying to make, if you're making biofuels with crops, you have to also consider what's the impact of actually growing those crops. And 
you know, I think that there's a lot of transformative work that's going to be going on in that space in particular, which you might not normally think of in terms of energy. So on the other side, what would you say is the biggest challenge for you at the agency? Agency as a whole or me myself? For, for <laughs> ARPA-E. For ARPA-E. It is getting program directors. Um, it is very challenging to ask people to, you know, either quit their jobs or to be on, you know, a temporary assignment and come to a place for three to five years and then leave. It very effectively screens for people that are comfortable with risk. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, they're just not at a point in their careers when they can do that. Um, and we are always hiring and we're always growing. And so it's getting those program directors, which is the most important thing to do. And there'll be people that we talk with for five years and all of a sudden, this is the perfect time. Now they can come do it. So we always like to get the message out there. If this is the type of thing you see yourself doing, you know, consider a job at RPE. You might not think about it, but you know, a lot of, we're looking for people from all different kinds of technical backgrounds to come to the agency. You know, before you, uh, before your government service, you worked in private industry. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's any best practices from the private sector that you can bring to ARPA-E. There absolutely are. And you know, one of the strengths of RPE is the fact that we have always considered market along with technology from the beginning, but that has strengthened with time. And when you're in industry, you know that you can't separate those two things. If you have technical folks in one silo and market folks in another silo, and they don't talk to each other, you're pretty much guaranteed to fail, in my opinion. Uh, the closer you bring those sides together so they both understand what customer needs are and what technical things are possible, then you really start to have something special. And so bringing that further emphasis on market right from the very beginning to the agency is something that I was passionate about. And it's why I joined the agency, because I saw it had that market side. And so, you know, just further, you know, making sure that that's the case has is, is been important to me. And I think it really speaks to the agency's success. You know, Jennifer, I started by saying ARPA-E's been around for 13 years. Has the American taxpayer gotten their bang for the buck from ARPA-E for the money that has been put in? What that's, do you think? I think that's a great question. And we have, a, we have a whole team that puts together impacts from the agency. Because if you think about it, if you're really far from the market, you're working on the craziest, most difficult new technologies, it's going to be a while before you can go buy them in Home Depot or wherever you like to buy your technologies. Uh, so we look at a number of different impact metrics. One of them is follow-on funding, just from the private sector. Not everybody gets that, but let's just say for the folks that do. We've put out about $3 billion as RPE, and we've got 10 billion our teams have gotten in follow-on funding, um, which is separate from things like exit valuations, which is like over $20 billion. So just in that alone, you can see here's technologies that exist now that didn't exist before that are moving forward. But there's also things like publications and patents and companies formed and things like that. Uh, so we're very proud of that because, again, we haven't been around for very long. All right. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Coming up next, the Pentagon wants to make sure civilians aren't harmed during operations. A former naval officer discusses the challenges DOD may face implementing its new plan. Stay with us. On August 25th, the Department of Defense released its highly anticipated Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan. Todd Huntley is the director of the National Security Law Program at Georgetown University Law Center. He's a former Judge Advocate General for the Navy. Todd, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So while you were on active duty, you deployed twice to Afghanistan with uh, Special Operations Forces. What was your role during airstrikes? 
Yes, so uh, my role was to be in the operations center while the strikes were um, being planned and conducted to give advice to both the planners and the uh, commander, uh, also referred to oftentimes as the target engagement authority, on the law and policy related to those strikes. So before we talk specifics, what was your biggest takeaway from DOD's plan? Uh, the biggest takeaway, uh, there really are two. One is the call uh, and requirement to implement measures across all operations, uh, all types of uh, conduct uh, that the military may conduct uh, in doctrine, policy, training, and strategy. So making this a part of how the military thinks, plans, and operates, I think is the most important one. And the second one is just the call and dedication to put resources against that requirement. So one thing the Pentagon's plan calls for is the establishment of a civilian protection center of excellence. What specifically would it do, and, and do you think it, it will work? Um, you know, the devil's going to be in the details. I think it, it it's a great idea. I think it's a, um, you know, it has a potential for making a, a real difference. Uh, obviously, it's going to depend on the resources that are um, given to it and uh, the role that it actually takes on. So I think a lot of the measures, including that one, we're going to have to see the details that are going to be put out in the forthcoming Department of Defense instruction. Uh, but I, overall, I think it's a it's a good idea. So what do you think some of the challenges are going to be in uh, implementing the changes outlined in the plan? Um, information, data, sharing all of that across all of the different entities in the Department of Defense. Uh, that are planning, uh, you know, putting together doctrine, training, and carrying out operations. That is really one of the challenges uh, that I think has been noted in many of the reviews and investigations before this plan's publication, uh, and then also um, the importance that's highlighted in the plan itself. You know, why? I wonder why you think it's taken this long to even have a plan, right? Civilians have been harmed in military operations since the, the founding of the country. Yes, um, I think um, one is when you're in the middle of an operation, when you're in the middle of a conflict, oftentimes I think it's difficult to take a step back uh, and think about how you might do things better. Um, I think the lack of sharing of information prevented a lot of these lessons from being shared. Um, and then I think it was the, uh, the increased attention that was brought on this problem by non-governmental organizations and media outlets. And you've written about the importance of understanding objectives in the targeting process. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so the very first step uh, in the targeting process is for the commander to outline his or her objectives for the operation. Uh, really, what that does is, you know, takes the um, the mission objectives that are set forth by our civilian leadership and then implements those across operations uh, putting on his or her own objectives on how that's going to actually be done. And so if the commander thinks it's important, uh, the commander's going to include that in the objectives for the mission. And that I think is really the key in making a difference in this area. You know, critics of this plan are saying that this is going to have um, a, a chilling effect. It's going to slow down operations. It's going to introduce too many layers of decisions and bureaucracy. Do you agree with that? 
No, I don't. Um, you know, that uh, I probably as long as lawyers have been part of the military, they've been blamed for slowing down uh, operations and and acting as speed bumps for uh, operations. But I think the forward looking nature of this plan, basically making sure that all of the measures are going to be in place, uh, systems are going to be in place, processes and personnel are going to be in place to think about this as operations are being planned that will help alleviate some of that concern that um, you know operations are going to be slowed down by this. The other thing that's interesting about the plan is right up front in the very first page, the Secretary of Defense states that the that the recommendations and implementations are scalable. That is, they can be implemented during counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations like we've seen the last 20 years, but they can also be implemented in large-scale peer-on-peer conflicts. And do you agree with that, Todd? Do you agree that this could be scaled to potentially a war with, uh, you know, a Russia, a China? Yes, I, I do. Um, obviously, when you're talking about combat operations and, you know, built up urban areas, you know, largely con uh, populated areas, um, unfortunately, there are going to be civilian casualties. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing whatever we can to try to prevent those uh, up front. Um, so I, I think it can be scaled, but I also think we have to be realistic that um, you know we're not going to be perfect. All right, Todd. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.